BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. For the better part of the last decade, science fiction finally evolved from a niche genre into a mainstream staple. And while many people are familiar with the so-called fathers and grandfathers of genre, the women who have been instrumental in creating and shaping the nerdverse have largely gone unrecognized until today. I'm Preeti Chibber, and this is Sci-Fi Fangirl's Forgotten Women of Genre, a podcast where we tell the stories of the women who helped some of the most famous fantasy worlds become a reality. She was a cinematic innovator who pioneered feminist film and theater in Britain during the 1960s. Her radical approach to storytelling helped to pave the way for generations of female directors and writers. She made waves on television, became an enemy of Salvador Dali, forced audiences to confront the reality of mental illness, and became one of the first women to direct a science fiction film. Sadly, you've probably never heard of her until today. This is the story of Jane Arden. Jane Arden was born Nora Patricia Morris in Pontypool, Wales in 1927. It's unknown exactly why she chose the pseudonym of Jane Arden, although it has been widely speculated that she took the name from a comic book character. The Jane Arden of fiction was a hotshot reporter whose exploits were featured in an internationally syndicated newspaper strip for 40 years. This Jane became one of the key influences for the creation of another spunky female reporter in the comic world, Lois Lane. Our Jane Arden moved to London to study acting at the prestigious Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts. She graduated in 1946 and almost immediately began working in television and film, first landing a small role in a BBC Live adaptation of Romeo and Juliet. Unfortunately, no recording of this adaptation exists, an issue that would come to define Arden's career. After working sporadically in projects that either don't exist anymore or are extremely difficult to track down, Arden married the director Philip Seville. Seville had a major impact on British film and television, directing some of the era's most significant titles. The pair briefly moved to New York before settling back in England, where Arden gave birth to their two sons. During this time, she mostly stepped away from acting, turning her attention to writing and directing. Initially, Arden's work as a writer for both TV and the stage was spread across various genres. She wrote sitcoms, such as the series Curtains for Harry, alongside Richard Lester, the feature director of A Hard Day's Night and two Superman movies. She also wrote dark dramatic plays such as The Party, which received high acclaim from the press and was notable for being the last theater appearance of Charles Lawton and the first stage appearance of Albert Finney. Arden would also return to the screen to act in her own scripts, often directed by or in collaboration with her husband. She played the lead in The Logic Game, a one-off drama she also wrote for the BBC's experimental series Six. The story centered on a typical middle-class English couple and their seemingly ideal life, only to peel back and reveal the turmoil and isolation within. This program coincided with Arden's increasing involvement in the feminist politics. 
She appeared on various TV specials and discussion panels as an expert on gender issues and the growing women's movement of the era. As time passed, feminism would become the backbone of her creative focus. Arden and Seville ultimately separated in the 1960s. The pair never actually divorced. Arden formed a creative and romantic partnership with director Jack Bond. Their first collaboration also helped to bring Arden back into the public eye. Bond was working on a documentary about the notorious artist Salvador Dali and his residency at the St. Regis Hotel in New York City. He needed someone to interview Dali about his creative process, which would form the through line of the film as Bond followed the artist around the city as he went about his daily life. Arden became the interviewer, and she had no intention of giving the legendary Salvador Dali an easy ride. Arden had little patience for Dali's theatrics and haughty way he treated those he considered inferior, which was basically everyone who wasn't Salvador Dali. In one memorable scene, Dali dramatically declares that everyone in the world is his slave, to which Arden wearily replies, I feel depressed at this concept of genius. Arden's more combative interview style so irritated Dali that he came close to abandoning the project, finding Arden to be insufficiently submissive to his whims. It was this tenacity and refusal to stay quiet that propelled Arden to the forefront of 1960s feminist culture in Britain. She and Bond collaborated on the 1967 drama Separation, a startlingly bleak story of a woman's marital and mental breakdown. As her politics became more radical, so did her work as a writer and actor. In 1967, she wrote the play Vagina Rex and the Gas Oven. This surrealist piece is often described as the first play to emerge from the British women's liberation movement. The latter half of the 1960s saw the end of censorship rule on the British stage, after centuries of government rule which allowed the Lord Chamberlain total control over the West End. Arden and her team took full advantage of this newfound freedom to shock their audiences, with images such as a giant projection of a vagina, through which the cast would emerge. The actors would interrogate audience members, breaking the fourth wall and daring them to look away as the central man and woman of the story masturbate on stage as he screams obscenities in her face. Vagina Rex is a story of oppression, abuse, and gaslighting, and a fiery reminder of why the feminist movement was and still is utterly necessary. Historian Arthur Marwick called the play, quote, perhaps the most important single production to ever take place at London's Arts Labs, where it ran sold-out performances for six months. In 1970, Arden formed Holocaust, a radical feminist theater group with whom she wrote and performed a play, A New Communion for Freaks, Prophets and Witches. Two years later, she adapted it for the screen under the title The Other Side of the Underneath making her feature film directorial debut. The film was the only British feature to be directed solely by a woman during the entirety of the 1970s, and is a very strange experimental piece noted at the time for its highly disturbing portrayal of its protagonist's mental state. The other side of the underneath saw Arden continue to use women's bodies as a means to explore male exploitation and the smothering agony of mental illness. If you are able to track down this film, and it's not easy to do, The Other Side of the Underneath is an extremely difficult watch. According to interviews on the DVD's special features, everyone on set was either drunk or high from LSD, Arden included, and actors stayed in character as mentally ill inmates of a derelict asylum for the entirety of production. There are many moments throughout where you can't help but wonder how much of this is staged and how much isn't, especially when half-naked actresses are being grabbed by extras. 
To this day, Arden's film divides critics. Molly Plowright of the Glasgow Herald said, quote, I don't know of anyone in cinema who has penetrated the psyche to the extent she has or evolved visual language of such richness and strength to convey what she has to say. In contrast, scholar Amy Simmons said that the entire movie, quote, smacks of voyeurism and exploitation. In 1979, Arden and Jack Bond collaborated for the final time, directing the sci-fi film Anti-Clock. The film starred Arden's son, Sebastian Seville, and was about as close to a commercial film as she ever made. It is still, however, deeply experimental and abrasive. Seville plays a young man dealing with suicidal ideation, who volunteers to undergo extreme surveillance to find what he calls a, quote, mental snapshot of himself. The film is largely shot on CCTV cameras to convey the unnerving sense of being watched from afar. This technique would become common in film and television, especially during the age of reality TV, but it was completely new when Arden and Bond did it. Typical for an Arden film, Anti-Clock is a tough viewing experience and deeply rooted in exploring the torment of mental illness. Open your eyes. Open them. They are open. Then why can't you see? Because I can't remember. You can't remember because you are sleepwalking. Our decisions are not made with our thoughts, but with our memories. It is as though one spot of your embryonic essence has been magnetized and is dragging you into another orbit. She portrayed the various aspects of life she found to be controlling or intellectually stifling, like marriage or modern technology or psychiatry, and tried to show ways to break free of them. A distrust of psychiatrists is a common theme in her work. This may seem controversial now, but in the 1960s and 70s, psychoanalysis was often notoriously sexist and relied on treating women as hysterics, regardless of whether or not they were truly in need of treatment. Women who were merely deemed too unruly or not submissive enough in their pre-established roles in society were often forced onto unnecessary medication. Some were even forcibly given electroshock treatment. Arden herself, a single mother with mental health issues, had good reason to be suspicious of doctors at the time. Her fear of those possibly invasive treatments, ones that would irrevocably change the way of her life, is evident in Anti-Clock. While none of Arden's work was explicitly autobiographical, it's easy to read between the lines. Sebastian Seville even admitted that Anti-Clock was a film, quote, about me and my mother. Anti-Clock was screened once in Britain during Arden's lifetime, premiering at the 1979 London Film Festival. It fared better in America, where its limited release found a fan in Andy Warhol. Vincent Canby of the New York Times, by contrast, slammed it as a, quote, quack movie that would be funny if it were seven minutes long. Arden's next project was to be a collaboration with a legendary French New Wave filmmaker, Claude Chabrol, a director who had hailed Anti-Clock as a, quote, futuristic masterpiece. But while Arden published feminist poetry to great acclaim, she never made another film after Anti-Clock. On December 20th, 1982, Arden died by suicide. For decades, Arden's work was almost impossible to find. But in 2009, the British Film Institute restored Arden and Bond's three major features, Separation, The Other Side of the Underneath, and Anti-Clock, for a DVD release. Sadly, most of her poetry and plays remain out of print. Because of the lack of accessibility to her work, Jane Arden's legacy has been allowed to flounder into almost total obscurity. 
while other experimental filmmakers of the era, such as David Lynch and Alejandro Jodorowsky, became icons, Arden was left to be a footnote. Jane Arden broke barriers for women with her radical feminist work, taking on difficult topics like sex, mental health, and the suffocating confines of marriage at a time when even talking about such things was taboo. She acted, she wrote, she directed, and she demanded the attention of the British cultural establishment. All that, and she did so as the only woman directing movies on her own for an entire decade. Today, as we continue to deal with social issues like mental health and the gaslighting of women, there's never been a better time to discover the work of Jane Arden. Forgotten Women of Genre is a production of Sci-Fi Fangirls. Today's episode was written by Kaylee Donaldson and read by Preeti Chibber. You can find the script of this episode and so much more at sci-fi fangirls.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sci-fi fangirls.